everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Master Instructor Roundtable. I'm Regional Master Instructor Marty Miller here with my dear friend and fellow Regional Master Instructor, Miss Wendy Batts. Wendy, how's everything going today? I'm great, Marty. How are you? Good. Excited to be here. Uh, this is a topic that uh, is near and dear to my heart because this is kind of how I started my career, but I think that there's a uh, a lot of application to everybody that uh, goes through our content. Yes, and I'm going to have to second that because that's also um, how I started my career, uh, working with specific individuals that needed rotational power. So you know what? Why not do a webinar about it? So. <laughs> I like it. And as we've said before, everybody's an athlete, so there'll be takeaways, whether you're training the recreational athlete all the way through your elite athlete. And everyone in between, everybody needs to learn how to rotate and develop some type of power within their abilities. Yep. And if you guys have listened to Marty and myself and read the content, you're going to know that most injuries occur while you're decelerating in the, in the uh, transverse plane of motion. And another reason why when we do these, we want to stress the importance that, you know, we we don't want to train in one plane of motion. It's super important to incorporate all three. And there is a progression, shockingly enough in order to get someone there safely, effectively, and efficiently. Well, it's so easy to stay in the sagittal plane though, Wendy. It's just- I know. Everybody can move forward and back. Why move? We can just stand right. there and just do whatever we need to do. <laughs> I was doing lower body today and I'm like, all right, time to get into the frontal and transverse. And it's, you know, it's, you, you got to be focused, but you got to do it. Yes. And when we talk about power too, we want to think about the OBT model. We are going to discuss that. We want to think there's a right time and a right place. However, you know, when you know that your client can successfully move in the sagittal and then in the frontal, and then we start bringing in transitional um, movements, you want to think how's the best way to get in there. And we often think too, that with athletes, as soon as they come in, if they're a rotational sport athlete, that we need to mimic those same patterns. But I think one thing that Marty and I will probably stress multiple times is that if you do have an athlete, whether it's yourself or a professional athlete that comes in through your doors and you're trying to help them, doing the same thing is actually going to hinder their performance because it's the repetitive movements. And sometimes you want to unwind what you're doing, think outside the box a little bit, realign the body, shockingly, and then you're going to end up having more power output when we um, actually get them back out on the field or mound or whatever it is that they're doing, whatever their sport may be. Yeah. And to date myself, you know, I started out in high school and right into college in the, either you were a bodybuilder or you were a power lifter if you were doing weight training. And then all of a sudden in the nineties, everything was that you need to stand on a BOSU ball, juggle things simultaneously and mimic the motion of the sport. And I think people just got carried away, not understanding that they're overloading bad patterns. So now I think we have a better understanding, you know, functional can be standing on a single leg. Functional could be an anterior tip exercise for somebody or functional could be preseason starting to get to the point where they're doing things that are more focused on their sport. So it's everything in between. Yes. And as you guys are just joining Marty and I, we're just starting out talking about rotational athletes and the secret of power development. And so we are going to talk about that. And if we go into the very first slide, you're going to see the intro. We're going to talk to you about components of power. We want to make sure on a definition that you guys are clear when we're talking about power, that we're on the same page. We're going to talk about how the body can create power and then how power development is a core component of the entire OPT model. So, you know, hopefully, like I said, 
you guys enjoy what we're getting ready to, to dive into because, uh, you know, I think uh, Marty does a really good job describing some of this stuff, you know, very well. So I'm excited to uh, listen to him a lot today as well. <laughs> no, no pressure. Thanks, Wendy. I appreciate it. Yeah, that. well, you know. <laughs> no worries. We'll see I'm going to sit time. back and uh, think about if I had popcorn, what you would say. <laughs> you can, you know, please. I always like the feedback. Yeah. Well, let's dive right on in. You got it. So I think first we got to talk about what power is, you know, so when you look at the actual form, it's force times velocity and we could, maybe there'll be questions we can get into, you know, at a later time, the force velocity curve, you can't just pick up heavy, heavy weight. You can't just move fast. There's a point where you have to have some, you know, uh, level of resistance at some speed to maximize your power. So, you know, just from a definition, power equals force times velocity. You have to have both components to develop the max amount of power. So when you increase force and or velocity, you will increase your power output. But going back to that's why the OPT model is built the way it is. You have to have a very structured and rigid foundation to produce force off of. Then you start to become stronger. So your force goes up. And then towards the end of the model, we're looking at velocity. So it's being built in the entire time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very important to think about too, Marty, because again, when we, when we do talk about stabilization and we tell them that they're going to increase in power, you know, when we start diving really deep into the model and we really think about what the outcome is, everyone needs power. And so we need to get someone safely there. And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, um, you know, a, a youth athlete that's trying to get involved in sports. It doesn't matter if you're a, you know, an active older adult. Not, I hate to just say seniors because, you know, our seniors are active and they are a little bit older. However, everyone in between, you know, we want to think too that you're only as strong as you are stable. You're only as powerful as you are strong and stable. So when we go through this and we start talking about force and we start talking about velocity, you know, like Marty just said, as one goes up, they both go up. And, you know, the easiest way to look at it is I've always said you can't fire a cannon from a canoe. Right. So you can have all the power you want, but if you don't have that stable platform, that's where it all begins. That's where it all begins. <laughs> so when we talk about, yeah, the definition, you know, we're really talking about when we're thinking about sports, it's the ability to exert maximal force in the shortest amount of time. And so while strength is a maximal, you know, strength is the maximal force that you can apply against a load power is going to be proportional to the speed at which that you can apply that maximal force and so these are two really good examples um, when you're thinking about pushing off of the starting blocks you look at his kinetic chain and then of course lifting the heavy load Whew, marty that's all you right there yeah that was me this morning right um did I you just change the face just yeah kind of i didn't want i didn't want to show off so i just okay. added the, the beard and everything um and some hair but uh, the key thing here is as short a time as possible, that amortization phase that we've talked about. So if you look at elite athletes, a lot of their top end speed will be almost the same. It's who can get there quicker. You know, I like watching uh, pro football. So if you look at some of these wide receivers or these amazing athletes, when they put their foot in the ground, they're automatically moving in another direction. And this is why sometimes these athletes are so hard to catch and, you know, to, to try to slow them down you know, change of direction. And, and you and I were both obviously big basketball fans back in the day with Steve Nash. And he was not the fastest guy, but he could put his foot in the ground and immediately get to his max power. And I promise you on a straightaway sprint, he wasn't as fast as others, but it was how quick he could apply that force and change direction. 
And there's other things into it. Obviously, if you have your kinetic chain and biomechanics right, you're not leaking energy and less chance of injury. But, you know, when you know I use a sled push and you use the same sled push all the time, someone's max wattage might be a thousand watts. But if they can hit that thousand watts at six yards versus eight yards, Mm -hmm. think how much more powerful they are if they can apply that force that much quicker. Yes. And, you know, maybe, maybe Steve Nash used the model. I mean, I'm just saying. I'm just, you know, I'm just going to throw that out there, get people thinking. <laughs> and those of you guys that are <laughs> joining Marty Miller and I on today's Master Instructor Roundtable, we're talking about, um, you know, developing power and especially rotational power. And so, you know, when we're thinking about these athletes, we want to really just go through some of the definitions. And if you guys are, are listening in and you have questions, please, please, please put them in the in the you know um chat section and we'll be able to hit those at the end of the or go over those at the end of the webinar or podcast today and and get those questions answered so please keep them coming if, if you've got any Hopefully. all right uh, you want to go ahead and think about this marty or I'll, I'll take this one yeah this is actually you know i, I love this diagram because it really kind of goes over from a high level, what we do in fitness every day, right? So we're applying resistance, we're applying exercises, we're trying to get muscles to contract, to make movement patterns. But when you really break it down, you've got three different systems that we can look at. The nervous system is your motor control. That's what's going to make the muscles fire, hopefully at the right time in the right sequence with the right amount of force that acts on the muscular system. And then if that goes well, the skeletal system will follow suit. So you and I are both manual therapists, so we can look at the skeletal system a little differently. But when we put our fitness hat only on, when we look at our movement assessments and what we look at applying exercises, if the nervous system and muscular system are doing what they need to do, the skeletal system should follow along. Now, this is a great opportunity. If you know that you're doing those two parts right and there's still some biomechanical uh flaws that you see, that's where you may want to refer out to a manual therapist. Sometimes you do need some soft tissue work, some joint mobilizations, and then all of a sudden that nervous system and muscular system can fire well again. Because as all of you, I'm sure know that if we have altered reciprocal inhibition and a muscle is overactive, I can't neurologically fire it as well, and it's going to biomechanically change the way I move. So that's why these three systems are so important when we look at them that you're not just working on one of them, you're working on all three. When we talk to our clients, we tend to talk about the muscular system. Okay, we're going to do a lunge. We're going to do a this. We're going to do that. And we talk about muscles, but in our world, we're looking at movement patterns. And we understand that a movement pattern is a sequence of muscles. Some stabilize, some mobilize, some are the agonists, some are the antagonists. But that has to come from the central nervous system to act on the skeletal system. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the easiest way of thinking about all the, the technical terms Marty said is your brain is a computer and what we're trying to do is input really good information in. So therefore it tells our muscles what to do firing at the right time of the right plane of motion. And then obviously that's what the, the muscles move the, the joints. And so everything does need to work together in harmony or there is dysfunction. And so one of the number one reasons that, that we talk so much about assessments is we need to identify any dysfunction or something that's not working correctly, because if we can really try to get better activation and alignment throughout the entire kinetic chain, as well as through our muscular system, we're going to really be able to produce the greatest amount of strength and power 
long term. But the beginning, it's really about reprogramming your brain and your muscles. And we know that it takes time for that to happen. And that's why every four to six weeks, we really try to tell you reassess, look at someone's movement patterns, making sure your programming is right. So therefore, when all systems are a go, they're fully a go. And you're going to see a, a huge amount of increase in speed. I mean, you've seen it, Marty. I mean, yeah. And the funny thing with this is I'm the person I know you are too, Wendy, with your clients, but even my own training, I want every rep to be perfect because <laughs> trying to elicit and to make it better, right? My computer programming sense. So I'm that guy, like, let's say I'm doing a lunge and I just, and I'm like, oh, seriously, like I start talking to myself. It's like, yeah, because I'm frustrated that I didn't dial in my nervous system to my musculars. And I'm like, really? Come on, focus. Because it's not just about going through the motions. It's about going through the execution and really making sure that every repetition is spot on. Yes. So I did that the, today too, but I will not, I'm not going to tell a lie. The last two reps I did on a certain leg exercise, I hated it. And I just wanted to get it over with. They were fast, probably not perfect, but I was done. <laughs> Stopped the watch, called it a day and moved on. Appreciate <laughs> the honesty. So when we talk about the regional interdependence model, you guys have heard us discuss this a lot, especially when we're talking um, the corrective exercise, uh, when we're going over the corrective exercise uh, information. And so, I mean, when we think about this, it's basically why we do the five kinetic chain checkpoints. We start and the five kinetic chain checkpoints for a reason. We look at the foot and ankle, and then we're going to look at the knee and look at the hip and look at the shoulder and the head because there are certain areas that when someone's standing, we wanna make sure that they're in a good alignment. But then also when we start doing some of these new mobility assessments, or if you use a goniometer and we start looking at joints, we wanna make sure that the ones that are supposed to be mobile are mobile, the ones that are supposed to be stable are stable. And so this is a good diagram. You know, We wanna think it's almost every other one. And people are like, I don't understand, but you want approximately 20 degrees of dorsiflexion in your ankle. If not, at least you know 10 to 15 to walk properly without severe compensation of external rotation. The mobility in the hip is also super important. Think it's a ball and socket joint. We want to be able to have degrees of freedom to move it and, you know, um, forward and back. You can move it into circles and that's what that ball and socket allows us to do. And in between that is the knee. And we've said this in many of our other um, uh, webinars that we've done. Unfortunately, the knee is, is told what to do by the hip and the ankle. And if both of those are not mobile like they're supposed to be then what ends up happening is we might see the knee adduct we might see you know things happening that aren't going to be the safest especially when you start adding power and rotational stresses to especially the lower body right if things don't move well slow they're not going to get better when you go fast wow that should have been the, the that should have been the the big motto for the day <laughs> mic drop thank you wendy yeah. <laughs> and if you're joining Marty Miller and I today on the Master Instructor Roundtable, we're talking about rotational athletes and the secrets to power. And so we've talked about the definition of what power is. So force times velocity is going to create more power. So that's what we're looking for. We've also talked about the importance of making sure that mobile joints are mobile, stable joints are stable. And then now we're going to kind of get a little bit more into the actual um, assessments and, and moving on when we're still talking about this particular model. Yeah. And I think before we leave here, there's a lot of things that are going to be important. But if you don't have mobility of your hip, if you don't have mobility of your thoracic spine and you don't have mobility of your shoulder, 
it is going to be very difficult to be a rotational power athlete or individual. If you are restricted, which most people are in those three, we'll get into it, but that is not beneficial to creating rotational power. No. And it really does like hinder the amount of power output that you can. And it seems like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But if you're not really looking at someone's mobility, and this is why I really think that our corrective exercise does a great job, especially the new content, because if you're not really looking at mobility and you're thinking, okay, do you really know if someone has 45 degrees of internal and external rotation of the hip? That's important because especially in a rotational sport, if you don't have that, then what ends up happening is we start tweaking our backs or we start utilizing other things. And then also if our back isn't, um, you know, if it's becoming the area that should is now mobile instead of more of the stable area, that's not, that's, that's where we start getting all this. Oh, my back hurts and this hurts. And now I've got this shooting pain down my leg. <laughs> right. Not, not a good ordeal. No, not what we're looking for. Not so much. So we did talk about it uh, briefly. I can jump in here, Wendy, with the force velocity curve. So when we talked about power equals force times velocity, you got to have enough of both to create maximum power. So when you look at this slide here, I think it's slide uh, spells it out very well. So on one axis, you got force on the other axis, you have velocity. So when you look, we'll start at top work our way down maximum strength, right? So the velocity is going to be very slow. Now, if I strip some of the weight off, yes, I'd be going very quickly. The benefit to max uh, load and max strength is I'm trying to get as many muscle fibers in that movement pattern to learn how to fire because it's the all or none principle. You're not going to fire all of those muscle fibers unless you're under heavy load. Then we look at strength speed. So this would be here. You see here squats, bend pressures, deadlifts, things like that around 75 to 85% of a one rep max performed with some speed. So these could be your power cleans clean and jerks, things like that. Then when we go to the next one, you'll see speed strength. So we'll bring it back up here as we go down. So this is now where there's lighter load and you're going to be able to do it for a longer period of time because there's less force. But now you're here, you're working more on technique and velocity, getting to learn how to get a bar moving or a kettlebell moving, et cetera. And then the last one is max speed where there's little to absolutely no load. So maybe up to 10% of your body weight, this could be where I'm doing plyo jumps, plyo push-ups, med ball pass, rotational pass. So I don't think people really look at the whole force velocity curve. They just kind of pick one thing randomly. So there is a continuum that you want to work within. But if you think about it, this works well within the OBT model because you get the max strength in phase four and then the beginning of the superset in phase five. Then the max speed is the secondary exercise. And then when you want to look at your strength speed, you could put that into the max strength as well. So the whole force velocity curve is covered if you do all the phases of the model. So I just wanted to kind of spell it out because I think sometimes the beauty and the science behind the OPT model is somewhat hidden. I don't think people really realize how much thought was put into when we, well, not we, when Mike, Dr. Mike Clark put these phases together in this and order. Yeah. And, and Marty, I mean, that was an exceptional job of doing that. And think about this when you're thinking about phase five, we're doing one to five reps of someone. So 85 to hundred percent of what someone has. 
and let's say it's a chest press. So they're on something stable. They're loading the bar as heavy as they can. Let's say they do, you know, a one rep max, or even they, they do three reps. Then they immediately go into something and as fast as they possibly can, which again, isn't going to be as fast as they could if they hadn't have lifted that load, but it's basically going into recruiting as many, um, you know, uh, muscle fibers as we can, then adding speed to that. And then it would go into almost like a phase six that you don't see, but that gets more into our performance enhancement, our PES, which is maximal speed. And so, um, or max, you know, and so when you're thinking about that and thinking about this curve, there is something even above that. So you're wanting to move as fast as you possibly can. If you make sure that you've got every joint lined up the way that it's supposed to, all the muscles are lined up the way that they're supposed to and firing in all three planes, the way that they're intended to fire, you are going to be able to lift more, but then you're also going to be able to execute even faster because you've got everything um, moving the way that it's supposed to move. And so therefore we're not having joint issues and our power production really does go go up to a highest, the, a really high level. Yep. Well said. Well, you know, I try. <laughs> so here, kind of what I talked about, I kind of gave a hint on the slide a couple slides ago is, you know, where are we trying to get our power from? There's another secret that we're going to show here in a slide. But it, as I said before, you can't fire a cannon from a canoe. So the joints that are supposed to be stable must be stable. So the arch of the foot has to be stable. The knee has to be stable. The lumbar spine has to be stable. The cervical spine has to be stable. Now, from there, you want to get a lot of your rotation in a golf, in a swinging a baseball, swinging a hockey stick, even martial arts when you're rotating. Now, some sports are one side dominant. Some sports like lacrosse, you have to be able to create power from both. Same thing in martial arts. But the joints don't change. It's just, are you able to switch sides and be able to do that sport from both sides? There are switch hitters in baseball, things like that, but the hip has to have good hip internal external rotation. The thoracic spine has to have good rotation and the shoulder. Those are the joints that allow that torque. And when the, in golf, they call it the X factor. When my hips are stable and I can turn only from my thoracic spine, they call that the X factor that allows a lot of torque and tension to be created. But if my low back starts to move with me, I'm not getting that torque to create power in the opposite direction. So that's why it's so important to start with corrective, start with stabilization, make sure the joints and the body are moving well and starting to be prepared for the demands that are coming as you start to move towards that power. And this kind of brings up a story too. Um, and I know Marty, I've shared this with you. You know, we had, I had a PGA guy that came in and he was having a bunch of issues with his lower back, but his power production was not that great. And he was doing really well at one point. And then he noticed that he was just really off his game. And of course, you know, some, some golfers will, you know, blame the clubs and everything. He knew that it was something with him. So we looked at range of motion. And again, when I talked about the hips, he had three degrees professional athlete, three degrees of internal rotation of the hip. Again, ideal is 45. And so within two sessions, because again, it was just an activation, you know, stretching the right thing, activating the right th thing. Yes, I did a little bit of manual therapy. So it was a little bit of that, but you know, his, his um, sacrum was locked down, which again, it's supposed to have a little bit of movement. His internal rotation was off. And, you know, he noticed that even when he went out, his club head swing went up I mean, almost five, 
five, which guys, that's a lot. That is a lot, especially on tour, because if you think about their rotational speed, it's already high. And all we did literally was unlock his hip. And so when we talk about this stuff and you think about it at the highest level, something as simple as that, because it really is simple. It was just looking at range of motion and then fixing it. And again, we've given you the tools. Why do I think the adductor magnus was involved? It was exactly, yeah, it's one of the, uh, yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. And so that, and, and, you know, and weaker hips. And it was the, it, the outer hips. And when we say that, you know, lateral tube walking and all the exercises that we've talked about, they play a very crucial role, um, especially with this particular individual that I'm talking about, because this is a one-sided sport. Is, you know, it's the repetitive motion. And you got to think, you know, sometimes it says par four and they may hit seven because they got stuck in a tree or they, you know, they were in some crazy grass, you know, and, and if they're doing that for 18 holes and then they go and practice and then they go and hit balls and then they're, you know, they go through each club. I mean, think about that just in one day. And then when they do it multiple days in a row over and over again, what are they doing for the other side? And that was really what we focused on too. We unlocked the hip, we focused on the other side and his power production went up very, very quickly. I love it. So for those of you just joining today, Wendy Batts and I here for the Master Truck Roundtable talk about the secrets to rotational power and power development. And if you're joining us uh, on the live stream, feel free to throw questions in the comments section and we will definitely get to those at the end. So the other thing, Wendy, you know, tennis is another sport that I've worked a lot with recreational athletes not that much different than golf. You know, obviously they have to have the agility to get in position to develop rotational power. So there is that component to it. But when you're looking at a serve, the same type of joints are still going to be needed to create power as if you were golfing. Different movement pattern, a little more uh, upper extremity from external rotation. Not that much different though when you look at a golf swing. But again, tennis is all about can you create the rotation from the right joints. If not, again, let's assume that the person has the ability to get their body in the right position. But if you can't rotate from the right body parts and all of a sudden you're swinging just with the arm, that's where the itis show up. So lateral epicondylitis, tennis elbow, and then same thing with golf. You get the golfer's elbow because now you're putting way too much force through your arms to try to catch up and do the acceleration where they should just go along for the ride. Yes. And I just noticed that, you know, I mean, I know that you changed the face here. That looks just like my tennis serve. But That's what I figured. I mean, my mechanics are probably, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, wow, mine do not look anything like that. I guess we should have put a side by side. What, right. you know, learning versus expert. <laughs> hey, at least you're out there. Hey, you know, that's very true. So, but here's the secret slide. The whole of everything to me, the takeaway, Wendy, is this slide right here. And it says everything is you cannot develop power in most sports. I'm trying to think of one where you don't need to have your feet on the ground is it all starts with your ground reaction forces. If you watch a golfer, if you watch someone go to throw a punch, if you watch someone do any sport, they first try to plant in the ground and use that energy through the kinetic chain. Now, hopefully the kinetic chain is dialed in and you're going through, you know, joint by joint by joint, the joints are doing what they're supposed to be doing and you're getting the motion from where you're supposed to get the motion, but you have to be able to be connected to the ground. And, you know, the sport that I played the, or participated the most in as an active adult was martial arts. And boy, oh boy, if your footwork wasn't right and you went to throw something, you could totally see the difference 
in the amount of force you could absorb versus the amount of force you could provide. And I remember one time, my, that's why he's my sensei, all of a sudden I'm on the ground. I'm like, what? He's like, your feet were too close, right? So I didn't, I wasn't grounded. And I'm like, okay, lesson learned. But same thing if you're trying to throw a punch, a kick, throw a baseball, throw a football, you can always see errant throws in the NFL when they're not set. And, you know, they're great athletes. They'll try to compensate and sometimes they can pull it off, but they're always going to be more accurate and more powerful when they have that great base of support underneath them using the ground to generate the force through the body. Mm-hmm. And I mean, those of you guys that have never seen any kind of ground reaction plates, they're amazing. And, you know, and one of the things that kind of is showing this right here, it allows, you know, we can get so much um, information if you have access to this. And so, you know, we're looking just, just so you guys know, when you're thinking about using this, you're thinking about the kinetic, um, characteristics of how an athlete or an individual moves. And if they are one side dominant, you know, how much so, so therefore like for, for Marty and myself and any of you guys that are really looking at someone, why we see asymmetrical weight shifts at times, because, you know, these plates allow us too to get an external understanding of the forces that are involved whenever these, these athletes are moving, whether they're doing their sport or not, but also on a corrective standpoint too, it allows us to see where they are in their skill development, where their brain is telling their body how to move. If there are more physical development um, demands that we need to do in the programming side. And so it really, it's, if, if you've never been able to see you see the outcome of these there, I find it so fascinating and it really does tell you a lot. And then it's also something that because it's, it's qualitative, you know, we're able to go back and, um, or, you know, and, and, and look at how the body moves and, um, you know, we, we're able to get the feedback, you know, each and every time when we put someone back on those plates to see where their shifts are. And what I like about this picture, let's assume that this is accurate. You have a right-handed golfer and it does appear that he's in his backswing. So should there be more force on the right leg at this time? Yes. Yes. So it's not always equal, right? Because as I'm going into my backswing, I'm going to have to use that leg a little further, but then I should see a transition where the pressure then switches to the left. Because if I'm staying too much on my right foot, I'm going to have a sway. I'm going to have a slide. I'm going to be back behind the, you know, I'm not going to transmit that energy forward through the golf ball. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would send to say that this is a pretty accurate picture that his right foot, as you're looking at on the left, you see there's more force. That's why you see the different colors, but that makes total sense for what he's trying to accomplish. Yeah. And when I was talking about that too, I wasn't talking about when someone's actually doing a swing, just, right. just for clarification, it, there's a way that you can do it where you put a, a, you know, you get the bar and let's say you're having someone just lift. And so they're going almost like a deadlift and it's like a, you know, you're having them just try to, to stand up. They've got the bars locked so they can't move it and their feet are on these plates. And of course they're in no shoes, just their socks or bare feet. And then they pull up as hard as they can. That lets us to see um, weight distribution as well. And so, you know, again, I'm, I'm, you know, that stuff I find fascinating. And again, maybe that's why I'm kind of a nerd, but um, I do find it fascinating when someone's, you know, they're right-handed and you notice that there's more load sometimes or a shift on their left. What well, makes sense because of the contralateral movement, but then maybe we need to look at more unilateral movement training and different things like that, or work on the opposing side. Well said, but it, you know, it's so important. And that's why I think we have to spend time. If you can, we've talked about this before with your shoe off, right? The right type of shoe. 
And then also folks, that's why even the single leg balance from stability is important. That's why our speed agility quickness that we teach throughout the model is important. The reaction, reactive training, because you're learning how to interact with the ground. And I don't think, I think people just think it's in there. I don't think they truly understand that this model was developed for elite athletes. We're all athletes. So if you can't communicate with the ground and keep everything in order, you're going to have problems as you go through the different progressions. Mm -hmm. Remember, find that reactive portion or the uh, reactive portion of your foot. Remember, it's behind the ball, but in front of the arch, it's a very small area. Learn how to land on it. Learn how to accept the force and you will decrease, as Marty said, the amortization phase, which is time on the ground. But you're also going to be able to produce max force, especially as you get to the power phases. So super, super important. Very good. And Wendy, your key takeaways? Yeah. So, you know, if you guys are just now joining in, you need to go back and watch it from the beginning. But Marty Miller and I were talking about the secret to power development and talking really about rotational athletes. And remember, everyone is an athlete. So um, if you you know want to go back, learn a little bit about the power we talked about, please do. But our key takeaways for today is basically we need to look at the five kinetic chain checkpoints. You need to do an assessment. You need to see if there's any kind of compensations or dysfunction that you're seeing. Realign the body because if there's dysfunction at the foot and ankle, it can actually affect everything up the kinetic chain. So you can have issues at the shoulder that might be because of the ankle. That's just the way the body works. It's a big old puzzle. Um, and one, one of the reasons why being an NASM certified personal trainer um, is so important because we give you all the tools to help correct that. Um, then again, thinking about utilizing the entire OPT model. Just because somebody needs to get power doesn't mean they should start in power. Starting them into stabilization, if there's compensations, building strength into power will get max power long term. It's going to help um, keep them successful, safe, and have the body function properly or appropriately. And then, of course, think about any exercises that you choose. You need to have progressions and regressions for everything, but just make sure that people are moving correctly. It's not about how fast they can move. It's about the quality of movement. Um, and so think about, you know, it's not just about a number either. It's, it's making sure all the executions done right. So when they move faster, they're going to have better form and, and power production. Yeah. I think that, uh, it's once you understand power development and the importance to it, I think it's, a, it's fun. Yeah, I think your clients enjoy it and it's great metabolically. It's great for activity day of living. I just think that it's something that, you know, when you really focus on why we have it in there and then how to tell that story to your clients, I think they'll truly enjoy participating in that type of programming. I agree. So if you guys, um, if you had any questions, uh, thanks so far, we're good right now. But if there's any questions, please make sure you get them in now before we uh, we call it a day. So we want to make sure that we get any questions you have answered. But in the meantime, if you do have questions that you think about later and want to contact me, you can always find me on, on Instagram at wendy.bats13 or you can always email me at wendy.bats at nasm.org. And then my information will pop up here as well. My Instagram is dr.martymiller72. And then my email, marty.miller at nasm.org. So Wendy, great job as always. And I think that hopefully we'll be getting some good feedback, good questions coming in. And this is how we get our topics for other master instructor roundtables. So for all of you that joined us today, we can't thank you enough. Feel free to reach out anytime and let us know how we can be of assistance. And we look forward to seeing you again next week.